Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to the primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and producers, industry professionals and policymakers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our urban and our rural communities. Well, another sheep and beef property goes out the gate for carbon farming, this time in Otago. I've talked about carbon farming on the show on more than one occasion, and in my view, we need to do something about it immediately. I've had David Norton on the show previously talking about carbon farming, among other things, and he has some great views, which I agree with, and you can catch that episode by searching David Norton and Factor Magri. The emissions trading scheme will not reduce New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions without having strong measures put in place to prevent the conversion of huge areas of productive land going into carbon farming. If preventative measures are not put in place, the focus will be taken away from actually reducing fossil fuel emissions, which are required to address climate change. The government needs to put in place significant limits on the amount of carbon farming available through the emissions trading scheme to offset fossil fuel emissions. It is absolutely vital there are safeguards in place to prevent fossil fuel emitters from having a free reign to offset all of their pollution on our landscapes at the expense of a sector that is worth 16% of New Zealand's exports and provides over 90,000 jobs. Furthermore, the social implications to our farming communities will be significant in a dramatic reduction of jobs and services available in our communities if we do not do something about carbon farming. Now when you consider rural communities and their social status, it is quite interesting. A while back I had a yarn with Nick Taylor from Taylor & Associates to discuss a report he produced looking at the social benefits irrigation has brought to the Amiri Basin in North Canterbury. Have a listen to our conversation as it raises some interesting findings. The reason I've raised the Emissions Trading Scheme this week and indeed at the same time irrigation in the Amiri Basin both have social implications to communities. Irrigation has the ability to improve social benefits of farming communities, whereas carbon farming, the complete opposite, occurs. It tears our farming communities apart. Hello, Nick. Thank you for talking with me today. Hi, Angus. It's a pleasure. From a farming perspective, why did the Amiri Basin need irrigation? (laughs) I guess... The quick answer is because it's dry. Um, I think it's one of those things that it, a lot of these irrigation projects we look at nowadays and we don't realise the amount of thinking and work and just do an effort by local farming leaders to actually get these projects off the ground. And that was very much the case of the Murray Irrigation. Um, farmers there had really become concerned about, I think, the low level of returns from farming. They wanted to increase productivity. Uh, They wanted to have greater resilience against drought, a succession of droughts in that area. And um, particularly looking at basic things like just, could you increase the amount of fat lambs you send off a property rather than just selling store lambs or the yields of crops and so forth. it was, it was very much about increasing the productivity of farming that they got into irrigation. Actually, that was an interesting scheme because it was built by the Ministry of Works in those days. I think it might have been the last big project the Ministry of Works built, last big irrigation project. Since then, they've been 
projects like Central Plains Irrigation have been much more farmer driven, farmer owned all the way through. Of course, Amiri Irrigation nowadays is a company and they they're actually bought the shares off the, off the government, bought the project off the government and took it over. Mm. So irrigation clearly provides significant changes to rural communities. What has been the social benefit from the introduction of irrigation into the Amiri Basin? Um, I'm probably reluctant to say everything's social benefit. There's, there's, there's ups and downs, there's pros and cons, but I think the, the key thing here is that irrigation brought the opportunity for land use change. So before you look at social change, you actually have to understand the land use change that took place. So whilst farmers in, say, the 80s, the scheme was built, early surveys of farmers showed that they were doing pretty much what I was saying before. They were looking at increasing the productivity of their farming. And then, of course, they got hit by a double whammy. They got hit by two things. One was the uh, the, the, the Rogenomics, the change in uh, the sort of whole rural economy of withdrawal of subsidies and many other things from rural areas. And they got hit by some really severe droughts in the late 1980s. So this really put a lot of pressure on farmers in that area who were having to deal with the extra debt of irrigation and the water and the investment on farm that they've had to make, water charges and so forth. So what happened, a lot of farms became uneconomic in that late 1980s, early 1990s period. And so what you saw was a really important kind of social and land use change in that farmers started to sell their, their properties to incoming dairy farmers. And dairy farmers started moving into the district from, I guess, the late 1990s, from, from the early 1990s. And uh, this brought a lot of change. It brought uh, dairy farming coming in, brought employment, it brought um, increased population, and it brought a lot of other changes that we, we might go and, and discuss as well. But certainly it, it increased the, uh, it brought in a younger age population. It was a boost for the schools. It was eventually a boost for community life as well and services, um, stock and station, all those sorts of things that have become quite run down in the 1980s started getting a boost as that um, land use change took place from around about 19, early 1990s. Has there been any social downside or social challenges with the introduction of irrigation? Certainly there were challenges. Um, when that population increased, it brought in a lot more the employment. I said the employment increased, but a lot of that was new paid employment. So there was also a shift from um, self-employed farmers towards people like share milkers coming in and also just farm workers. So you've got a big increase in dairy farmers and farm workers through this period in the area. So that created things like a demand for housing. And initially there were a lot of problems in the Amiri around uh, providing adequate housing for these incoming workers. So that was just one example of um, some of the challenges. More recently in the, probably since around about 2000, there's been a big increase in the employment of migrant workers. And so that became a new challenge. A lot of people you talk to in the Amiri will say how great it is that they've got a really diverse population with 
all sorts of different cultures and peoples there today than there were in the past. But you actually uh, look at that that period when those people came in and the community had to obviously adjust to newcomers and so forth. So that was certainly a period of challenge, but one I think they've come through really well in terms of the way people go about employing migrant workers and also how the wider community as a whole accepts newcomers from the period when newcomer farmers came in through to the sort of situation you have today. So there were certainly challenges um, and uh, I think generally people have uh, have dealt with them pretty well. Mm. You talked about the 80s being a, a challenging decade, um, Rogenomics, severe droughts uh, and of course the share market crash. Do you think those things accelerated the inevitability of irrigation in the Amiri Basin? I think, as I said, they accelerated the inevitability of land use change. Mm. They certainly accelerated the need to diversify the economy and the direction that went in was more intensive farming through through irrigation and the shift to dairy farming. Um, but it was certainly a tough time. You know, you talk to people there today and they'll say, well, even today, if you talk to people who went through that period, they're, they're often reluctant to talk about it in any detail. They, it was a tough time for people. And uh, you could, as I said earlier, it wasn't just um, the impact it had on farming, but it was the impact on things like, you know, rural schools and loss of health services, stock and station firms. Lots of changes took place at that time, and it was tough for people to get through that. And uh, I think probably everyone agrees nowadays that rural areas have come out stronger and more resilient as a result of that, but it wasn't an easy period. What is your view on biodiversity and does irrigation help to improve it? It's <laughs> an interesting question too. Um, of course, you've got to distinguish between indigenous biodiversity and exotic biodiversity. A lot of farmers will talk to you about how the biodiversity of their land has improved as a result of irrigation. Soils have become thicker, uh, it's, it's, it's assisted the biodiversity of pastures and that sort of thing. But it, realistically, if you also look at it, there was a lot of landscape change. Um, there was a with intensive farming and then more recently with things like centre pivot irrigation systems. You've seen a loss of, of trees, of shelter belts that have taken years to plant. And, and you'll talk to older, older time farmers who'll say, you know, really lament the loss of those things. Um, so from a biodiversity production oriented biodiversity, I think there's been a lot of changes. But then indigenous biodiversity was also lost. So obviously, You've got, you had a loss of dryland farming, the biodiversity that went with dryland farming. And uh, there were very few, there's only one, really only one remnant of that left, one small reserve, I think it's just a couple of hectares, um, that reflect what that original kind of Matagari based scrubland type um, biodiversity was. So that has been lost. Now, the other side of that, I think farmers nowadays are much more aware of these environmental issues and they have been doing a lot to enhance indigenous biodiversity with um, sorts of efforts to do riparian planting, 
plant parts of their farms with uh, indigenous plants and so forth. So it's been a big effort, and Emiri is a good example of how that effort has been going on in recent years with huge numbers of, of trees and shrubs being planted. I don't count a, a couple of flax trees or a cabbage tree as a big increase in biodiversity. So really it's when that effort happens, say, within a wide riparian strip and people are making a big effort to kind of create a new or recreate the indigenous ecology that I think that has been a big improvement. Mm. And that leads me into the environmental side of things a bit because I ask this question a lot, but I think it's a really important one. Do you think farmers are aware of their environmental impact? And do you think they're working hard to constantly review and improve their practices? Oh, absolutely. I think there's been a um, real shift in thinking. Yeah, I think if you look at the introduction of irrigated intensive farming across, Can- across Canterbury as a whole since uh, the late early 1990s through that period of time, it's been right across Canterbury. I, I don't think the environmental management systems were well set up, geared up to deal with that change. I think farmers were very focused on their properties and not what was happening beyond the boundaries of their properties. And really, we were doing a poor job of managing the environment. As a result of that, of course, kind of over time, we've had increase in national policy statements on freshwater management. We've had now recently the biodiversity uh, policy statement coming out. We've got a real push to improve environmental management and the Regional Council has been particularly involved in that in setting up water management plans for the different catchments in, in the region and that has been a huge effort and brought, I think, initially a lot of farmers were wary of that process, probably some of them still are, but it has brought some really improved environmental management processes. So if you look at the Amiri irrigation area, I think all of the farmers now in the Amiri scheme have have and are committed to farm environment plans. That's been a big change and a real recognition that the impacts of farming go well beyond the farm gate. So, you know, that you're looking at effects on groundwater, on surface water, quality, abstraction of surface water, uh, biodiversity management, as we were talking about before. All these things, I think, are much better recognised by farmers. And I think that has been one of the the big social changes that has actually taken place in the last few years. What does the future look like for farming in New Zealand, considering how important the industry is to our economy? Well, I think we've seen in this in this whole COVID episode, how important primary production is to the country. Our, uh, I don't think our economy would be looking too good if we didn't have exports right now. All the export work, export-oriented work in primary production and processing and transport and everything else that goes on. So I think you, you can really see the importance of the primary production sector. Um, I think... It, that is now probably widely recognised by the population of the country. Urban areas in particular see that uh, that's been very important to us. I think the interesting thing about the rural economy nowadays is we recognise it's, it's a very mixed economy. I think we will still see a lot of um, 
different types of production. There are pushes towards new areas of thinking and farming, like um, not just organic farming, but regenerative agriculture, um, looking at things like um, biodiversity on farms, indigenous planting, earning carbon credits, mixed businesses so that farmers are actually farm families are looking at opportunities to do things like run a tourism enterprise on their farm in addition to what they're doing in, uh, in farming. Uh, farmers moving into direct marketing and processing of products. You just have to look at programs like Country Calendar and you see the, the, all the innovation and activities that are going on around the country all the time. So I'm very hopeful for that kind of mixed economy. I'm hoping that the tourism sector gets through this period, at least for domestic tourism, um, and also learns perhaps better how to manage the environmental effects of international tourism. That will be something that I hope will come out for um, our farming areas as well. So I see a lot of I see a lot of hope, a lot of positive hope for the farming areas um, at the present time. I thank you very much for your time today, Nick. Sure, pleasure. This interview was, in my view, very interesting. And what we discussed was the social benefits irrigation can bring to a rural community. Many East Coast areas right at this point in time are very, very dry. Whilst environmental impacts and climate change are currently being addressed through significant programs and groups, many of which are being discussed on the show, I still think we are underutilising irrigation in this country. The obvious benefits are economic for our farmers as they have greater control over their ability to grow feed for their livestock or whatever agricultural activity they are engaged in. Water is critical to achieve their economic outcomes and whether the individual agrees or not, New Zealand actually has an enormous amount of water that flows through its valleys and rivers, plains, underground and out to sea. How it is managed both coming onto the farm and indeed out the other end is another conversation. And of course, the other benefit, as we have discussed, is the social benefit, which is what Nick Taylor and myself talked about. Nick has carried out a social assessment report on the Amiri Basin and the outcomes he found, and as discussed, water has transformed the landscape and brought considerable social change to the irrigated area and its towns, people and communities. The fundamental driver was the conversion from dryland farming of sheep and beef with limited cropping to dairy farming and the accompanying changes in farming type, irrigation technology, herd size, farm ownership, management systems and employment meant that the population of the Amuri Basin held relatively steady up to 2001, a period when other areas had falling populations. The rate of population growth peaked in the 2001 to 2006 period and was greatest for the irrigated area compared to the towns. The land use changes with irrigation brought a younger population with high levels of tertiary qualifications and this has largely remained the case, although the working population is now older but there is also regular introduction of younger workers, managers and families. The townships also have an increasing proportion of older people. The Murray Basin, along with the rest of the Huronu district, has employment dominated by the agricultural sector. There is some increase in the visitor and hospitality sector. There has also been a marked increase in the number and proportion of paid employees in the irrigated areas and a reduction in self-employed farmers. The irrigated areas have a noticeably high proportion of people employed full-time. Household incomes in the irrigated areas are noticeably higher than in the townships. 
the district and the nation. While the townships of Rotherham and Culverton have lower household incomes than the irrigated areas, they are better off than the townships of Harden and Waikari, suggesting the economic benefits of irrigation flows into the closer settlements. There has also been an increase in cultural and ethnic diversity. There was wide adoption of the employment of migrant workers between 2006 and 2013, with increased proportion of Asians bringing a significant change in ethnicity to the Amuri Basin over this period. The presence of more younger families has helped school roles, with schools being important community hubs, right? Amuri Area School is doing well for roll numbers, and Rotherham School has a steady increase. In comparison, both Waia and Waikari have almost halved their role since 1997. There has been an increase in the Amuri population. The economic activity of farming has helped to boost medical services and a range of businesses including builders, vets and rural supplies. Sports groups and community activities have also benefited. As New Zealand continues to drive towards sustainability and lower emissions, our story will be unique and I believe in time we will see farm gate returns dramatically increase for our farmers which will allow our more traditional sheep and beef farmers the opportunity to capitalise on irrigation when previously the numbers didn't quite stack up. That's all from me this week. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factor Magri.